Our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 23, if you'll read along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let the one, uh, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. The Lord bless to us the reading of his holy word. To his name be glory and praise. Paul had to treat the Corinthians as if they were infants, as little babies who needed milk to drink because they couldn't abide the maturing, solid food. And what he's doing is he's calling them out as he's hearing about what's going on in the midst of their congregation primarily in regard to their boasting. You'll notice as we go through this book, he's frequently calling them out as being puffed up in their pride for many reasons. They had all sorts of spiritual gifts that they were really proud of, that they thought they were special. They could lord it over other people. They had begun to in this immediate context uh, divide into groups, those who followed Paul or Apollos. And he's saying to them, what is this wisdom that your congregation has produced? What is this wisdom that you think that you have that is puffing you up so much? What's the fruit of that? Because it seems to my ears that I hear, says Paul, is that in the midst of your congregation is jealousy and strife and frustration and division and sexual immorality and lovelessness. What's going on? And so he's had to take the past few chapters we've been together, this sort of long extended rebuke of their so-called maturity or their so-called wisdom. The gospel that they received from Paul is the wisdom and power of God. It's to liberate them from their sins. It's to unite them to God through Christ It's to reconcile the questions of life and death and eternity and to establish Christ's kingdom on the earth in the church, a visible bond of peace. They were to mature in this and build upon this, upon Jesus' foundation with material that would last, gold, silver, precious stones, but instead... They were beginning to build on top of the gospel with wood, hay, and stubble, things that were disposable, things that would not last. What they had done is taken the gospel and they had diluted it with the wisdom of the age. In particular, in the Corinthian context, they're sort of in this Greek Mediterranean world, and 
one of the great things that you would see are these temples and philosophers and sages, and they loved gurus. They loved powerful and strong, wise men. And so they had the gospel of Christ. They had come in. They began to band together as a church in Corinth. And then they took the wisdom of their age, these these wise men, these sages and these gurus, and they said, well, let's just apply that, what we know, into the church and kind of have this mixture of the world's ways and the world's wisdom and then God's wisdom. And they began to set up pillars in the church. They began to idolize um, and admire. So they would say, we have Paul. We have Apollos. We have Peter. There began to be tension and strife amongst the Corinthians. This type of thinking is immature. They were to build the church with things that accorded with its foundation. They were to build in maturity with things that accorded with Christ. The whole church is built on him, and he needs no other uh, men to come along inside him and hold up the structure of the church. It is all on him. And that is where the church is its most stable. That is where the church is its most true. And that is where the church demonstrates itself to the world. We stand on Christ. And Paul says, I, I am to know nothing else among you except for Christ and him crucified. If I'm going to boast in anything, it's going to be boasting in the Lord. And as we read in this text, let no, let no one boast in men. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. It's our testimony. It's an attempt to build upon the foundation of Christ with these disposable materials. And so Paul, in this section, reaches the pinnacle of this argument. He's, uh, he's kind of getting to the, the very top of it, and he begins to diagnose what he's going to do to encourage and bless the Corinthians. How do you fix this? How do you come alongside them? Because you know as a parent... Uh, You might want your child to eat solid food, and maybe they're still just wanting the bottle. But as a parent, you have to come back and say, okay, well, well, let's put some milk back in your belly. You need something to eat. So even though he has to sort of come to them, he says, "I I wish I could come with solid food. I'm having to come back and remind you of first principles. Here's a little bit of that for you today to encourage you, to move you along, to build rightly. The theme for this morning being, look at one verse with me. Look at verse 21. Let no one boast in men. This is sort of his pinnacle final word. For all things are yours. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Before we dive in, I want to suggest something. Just just a way of thinking about what we're going to look at this morning. Um, what's the motive behind the fracturing here? What's the motive that would cause a congregation to want to divide up and boast in themselves or boast in their leadership instead of boasting in Christ alone? What's the motive that sort of undermined their inheritance that caused so much tension there? Let me suggest that it was insecurity. Let me suggest that it was insecurity. And I take that um, by implication of what Paul's remedy to this is. How he begins to encourage them seems to be in a direct assault, not just against their boasting, but what's behind boasting is insecurity. Why, why do people boast? Why do we boast? 
There's usually two reasons, right? Uh, sort of this overcompensating uh, delight in our own strength, our own stability. We're charmed by strength. It seems grand. It seems stable. And so we isolate it and we idolize it for a sense of security. And that's what they were doing. We have Paul. Ah, we have this original apostle. No, 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 no. I want to follow Peter. He was one of the twelve. That's where I get my stability. I'm going to boast in Peter. Well, I'm going to boast in Apollos. Do you hear how eloquent Apollos is? That's what we're taught. He's a, a man with beautiful speech. There's also another side to insecurity. Insecurity doesn't just boast in itself. Sometimes it latches on in a sense of fear. You aren't so stable. You aren't so convinced of your own gifts. You aren't so convinced of the gospel. You aren't so convinced of the stability of Christ. And so this world and and walking in faith as a Christian is a bit scary. And so you latch on to what seems like wisdom and stability. So I want to latch on to... um, iconography or the saints or or prayers or liturgy or a theologian or a pastor or a congregation that's the stability of my faith i'm going to hold on to man or man's wisdom so paul comes to give i think two primary exhortations just in some encouragement to say stop your boasting i'm going to address your insecurity and in christ remind you of your security. In Christ, remind you that everything in Christ is okay. And you don't need to do this. It's not necessary to attach to men. You have something greater. So let me suggest two dynamics this morning. He encourages them in two ways. Number one, he reminds them of who they are. And the second being, he reminds them of whose they are who they are, and whose they are. Let's look at the text together, 16 through 17. This will be who they are. Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. He's talking here collectively By the way, he's not just aiming at the individuals here. The whole context preceding this is that uh, communication to the church. And he says, you are the temple. That would land on their ears maybe differently than it does with ours. They would have known that the temple is the dwelling place of God on earth. It is a representative dwelling place where God is. And at the time of this writing, the temple still stood shortly after The temple was destroyed. It's still destroyed today. And what happened is that the transfer went from this physical dwelling place where it was a representative to people of God with man. It changed away from brick and mortar. And so this metaphor Paul uses, he says, you are that brick and mortar. You are being built up into the temple of God. You cannot represent God with this sense of division, jealousy, strife, you, this congregation, are the 
temple, the representative of God to the world. As we saw in Sunday school this morning, Andrew showed us this, this, the chart of the temple. If you guys were in there, it was a great blessing to see that. It was perfect timing to come into this text, Andrew, because part of even going into the temple, we talked about this morning, was the cleansing rites and the, uh, the sort of the difficulty of going in there. It wasn't not to be taken lightly. God's temple was a holy place, and he guarded it jealously. And in the same way, it's not a, uh, we don't diminish the sense of God's dwelling place on earth by having a congregation that is allowed to be mixed with all this sin, standing on its foundation other than Christ or trying to hold on to other things. He says, even more so, I am coming out of the, the temple and going into the church. How much more is the, is the argument? How much more am I um, going to aspire to make you holy as I am holy? How much more is God going to cleanse the church to make sure that it is standing as a representative of himself? How does the text say it? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You could see sort of uh, Jesus um, using a similar line of thinking. See if you can piece this together with me from Matthew 23, 15. It's sort of the whole chapter of the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Listen, Listen how easy this is in the name of religion to mix up ultimate things, to get it wrong. This isn't just the Pharisees. This is to us. He says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater the gold of the temple uh, that is made, or, or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And if you'd like to continue on, he does it for an entire chapter. He just... <laughs> Woe to you, Corinthians. Which is greater? Paul, the messenger of the gospel, or the Christ of the gospel? Do you see that line of thinking? How how easy it is to confuse ultimate things, to latch on in our sense of insecurity. I want something that's stable. I want to I want a voice that's stable. I want a church that's stable. And so I will hold on to what's immediate and what gives me security. Or, sometimes worse, a boasting because you think you're so stable. You think you're so collected. And he said, no, you are the temple of God. If anyone boasts, boast in the Lord. God cares about his temple. Let me, let me go on and flesh this out just a little bit more. Verses 18 through 21. So let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may truly become wise. Verse 19, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. And let no one boast in men. Interesting phrase to say you're deceiving yourself. You are the one telling the lie, and you are the one believing the lie. How does that work? 
We do it all the time. The wisdom of this age, Paul says, is foolishness. This thing you think is secure is, is not. And if you are not cautious about this, will be your downfall. To the Corinthians, fracturing the congregation over their favorite teacher was foolish. You can see this elsewhere. To the Galatians, making converts become Jews first by circumcision, having begun by the Spirit, trying to become perfected by the flesh, was foolishness. This is a theme in Scripture. To denominations that follow men, thinking that they are stable and secure, headlong into a distrust of the Bible, into an acceptance of the world's view of sexuality or envy or wisdom, is folly. You ever traced the denomination before? You ever traced the denomination before? They had, they had his, his philosophers come in, men come in, goes up and down, follows this way and that way. Is the gospel that unsure? And I think it's fair if I name a name because it's close to home. Uh, Andy Stanley, down the street, he's repeatedly said, I'm going to unhitch from the Old Testament. I'm going to unhitch from the Old Testament because I don't want people to be um, confused about coming into the church. I don't want to put an obstacle in their way to come into the church. I just want them to see Christ. If they see some of the old things in the Old Testament, it might be a hindrance. No. No. That is foolish thing to do. Self-deception says, this is good, isn't it? Isn't this good? Isn't this seem stable? Doesn't this maybe get rid of some of the difficulty of our faith? Doesn't this seem to cloak some of the embarrassment of the cross? Adding in this philosophy or adding in this strong teacher or this eloquent voice, doesn't this seem to give us credential? Any philosophy that comes and any temptation to do that is foolishness. And it can feel easy because Christ can seem small. And you go about your daily life and you feel like you're tossed around. So stability is exactly what you need. This is what happens. I'm going to read you a quote from D.A. Carson. The ways of destroying the church are many and colorful. Raw factionalism will do it. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eyes off the cross and letting other more peripheral matters dominate the agenda will do it, admittedly more slowly. Building the church with superficial conversions... Wonderful programs that rarely bring people into deeper knowledge of the living God will do it. Entertaining people to death will do it. And never fostering the beauty and the holiness and the centrality of self-crucifying love will build an assembly of religious people. But it will destroy the church of the living God. Gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, self-promotion, materialism, all of these things and many more can destroy a church. And to do so is dangerous. For if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. 
And it is a fearful thing to to fall into the hands of the living God. These kinds of truths are all too frequently ignored by our modern counterparts. And this calls for thoughtful self-examination and repentance. So who are we? We're God's temple. We are his temple. Not trying to uh, stabilize ourselves so that we can be the temple strong and mighty. But we are his temple. Made, fashioned, formed, completely inaugurated by himself. He will build his church as he sees fit. He will prune the vine as he needs to. But he will strengthen his church with the power of his spirit. To be the temple of God is to be the dwelling place of the Spirit of God and not to willingly empty ourselves of the Spirit because we find stability in the flesh. Does that make sense? We will not abide the leaving of God's Spirit. We will not devolve into worldly wisdom and to fleshiness and to prayerlessness and independence. We will, do, we will go to dependence, being led by the Spirit of God because there's our strength. Being holy as he is holy. If we're going to boast, we'll boast in the Lord. So secondly, whose are you? Who are you? Well, you're the temple of God, but whose are you? How does Paul begin to shore up some of this insecurity? Verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. It's an amazing, beautiful, life-giving encouragement. So he starts off in the immediate point of view. Brothers, Paul and Apollos and Cephas, they're... You don't have to hold on to them. You don't have to isolate them and pit them against each other. You don't have to cling on to them as if they're your stability, your hope, your access to God. They're not. They're yours. Paul, with all of his uh, apostleship, all of his vigor, all of his theological wrestlings, all of his martyrdoms, all of his shipwrecks, all of his uh, uh, his, his testimony, they're yours. They're yours. Enjoy it part of the church. Apollos, all of his eloquence, all of his brilliance, all of his words that make your heart sore when he preaches the gospel and expounds the wisdom of God, it's yours. All the benefit that you're getting there, take it. It's yours. But you don't need to hold on to Apollos. Peter, it's one of the 12, kind of inside scoop on the life of Jesus. He stuck his foot in his mouth so many times and was given grace and, and pardon and by the Spirit of God. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Peter's yours. Peter's yours. He's a brother to you. The letters that he will write, the prayers that he will pray, the influence, the testimony that he'll have in the church, it's yours. Take it. But you don't need to hold on to Peter. You don't need to hold on to Peter. Like Peter, standing on the water, you need to look at Christ. Hold on to Christ. 
Paul takes that and he expands it. I think he knows they need encouragement. They're insecure. It begins to sort of brighten their view on existence and eternity. He says, brothers, the world is yours. Every section in the library is the Christian section. Every country in the world is Christ's country. Every ocean is Christ's ocean. Every political movement is, belongs to Christ. Every trip you take, all the world and its troubles, all the world and its days, the planets, the solar system, the cosmos, they're all yours, brothers. You don't have to cower down in, in fear. You don't have to hold on, find stability. The whole world has been thrown in. You're a child of God. As the prodigal son runs, runs home, he says, prepare the fatted calf, come and enjoy. All things have always been yours. Life is yours. Do you know that? Kids especially, listen up. Life is yours. Learn it early. It is not for the rat race of money or relationships or stability and something else. You have been given Christ. God is your Father. Every blade of grass. Have you seen Lion King, right? Maybe not. But he goes out and he says, son, you see where the, the sun lands? Everything the sun touches is yours. Run free. Your dad's the king. Everything in life is yours. The trials are yours. The difficulties are yours. The beautiful fall leaves are yours. Changing of the seasons, the changing of the guards, the changing of the years, they all belong to you. There's nothing to be afraid of. He will use those things in life for your good, to live as Christ, to die as gain. What does our uh, confession of faith say to Heidelberg? What is our only comfort in life and death? You might know it. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. One of the ways the devil tyrannizes us is the fear of this world the clinging on to its wisdom. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified to the world. You can hear the biblical language all over the place. I've been born again. I see with new eyes. He keeps going. Kids, not only is life yours, but death is yours. Death has lost its sting. Death is not to be feared anymore. And all of this, by the way, is grounded upon, predicated upon the cross. What was the purchasing power? What was the access to this kind of life that you can stand with such stability, not in man, but in God? It's the cross. It was purchased for you by the love of Jesus. It is not just your individual salvation, your pardoning of your guilt, but it is the access to the Father in all of life, in all of the world, and all of death thrown in. And there is nothing to fear anymore. Spurgeon says, Death, you are mine. I write you down among my goods and chattels, a part of my property. Take heed how you try to make your master tremble. But you are not my master, Death. I am yours. Come here, give me your hand, O Death. Be it mine to talk with myself every day and to talk with you too. And occasionally you need to whip that out and just say, 
whatever is bothering me, whatever anxiety is pressing down on me, whatever fear I think that I'm not going to make it, I'm not secure, I'm not going to be okay, surely God would not love me, surely tomorrow is terrifying, something's going to change, politics, the 2024 election's coming up. Whatever you think is going to happen, brothers, look to Christ. Paul said you were, you were drinking such spiritual milk, you're so immature that you would have such a small vision that you would look at man, Brothers, look up. Look beyond you. He says the present is yours. Today is yours. And the future is yours. And then he goes a little bit further. And he says that you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. In the one hand, all of our hands are holding on to Christ. Let go of men's hands, let go of men's philosophies, let go of men's wisdom, hold on to Christ's hands. Step one. And in Christ, because of the cross, you have all of his benefits. You have his atoning sacrifice, you have his love, you have his mercy, you have his resurrection. You have life. All of the brokenness of this world has been transformed by Christ. All of the emptiness, the blackness, the tangle of sin, the web of messed up, just not of gross inside of us, is made right in Christ. And even though you might feel your flesh, your mind will say, I'm just nobody, I'm just terrified, I've just got all these things, and my life's not going my way, and I've got cancer, and my kids are not obedient, I'm, I'm fearful. Hold on to Christ, it will all be made well. And you know what Christ's hand is held on to? The Father. That's what John 14 and John 17 says. God, you have held on to me, and I hold on to them, and all that I bring to you are yours. It's the high priestly prayer. He is our mediator between the two, and he will not let you go. Which means that all of God's favor to his son, all of God's benefit to his son, do you think God is going to be gracious to Christ the son? All of the promises, all of the stability of heaven is yours. All of the benefits that come to Christ as the Son of God come to you. At this very moment from the throne of God, they don't sweat or they don't pace around because they're nervous, wondering what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. They are supreme. And brothers and sisters, in Christ, that's our testimony. Above anything else that we can say, above anything else that we hold on to, what a shame it would be to boast that our Christianity and our stability is in a man's philosophy or a teacher. It's almost become stupid, and it is. And they didn't see it. They couldn't see it. And it'd be very easy for us to say, it's been a minute since I've just looked up at Christ and thought about how the Bible speaks that all the things that God has to give into his son belong to me. It's hard to believe that you inherit such things. It's easy to cling on for stability to something that seems stable. May I suggest that you look beyond the stability of men. This morning, if needed, self-reflection and repentance... 
that we look beyond. And we confess, Lord, I have looked at X, Y, and Z to find my stability, claiming your name as well, but not fully trusting that you alone could do it. The types of testimonies that begin to step on and rest on Christ alone, empowered by the Spirit, the Spirit producing faith and trust and love and joy and peace, is a powerful testimony to the world, which is another way of, roundabout way of saying if our congregations are filled with man-trusting, then our presence and evangelism to the world will be powerless. We might could build a big church, because we build it up on the wisdom of men that seem smart and attract a bunch of other unstable, insecure people. But let it be that our testimony is Christ, the real thing, the big thing, the powerful thing. Let no one boast in men or cling to men. And Christ is not only enough, but he's everything. 